This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, where a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. And what I believe is our eighth annual Food Trend Show, we have Michael Whiteman in studio to talk about all things 2019. We touch upon rising menu costs, uh, getting sweet on sour, and this year's 2019 buzzwords. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, sitting across from Michael Whiteman. Our eighth year together. Our eighth year together. We're going steady. I mean, we're we're officially this is a, this is officially a thing. I know people will talk. They will say they will say things. Um, thank you again for writing such a wonderful trend report. It, it is a joy to read every year. It is our cheat sheet. Uh, we sound super educated um, th- for all the dinner parties to come. Well, I've, I've discovered that you're my audience of one. Oh well, there's two of us. Darren's just you know out in L.A. So um, we're going to start at the beginning. Um, what you have kind of touched on over the years is, is a discrepancy in how people eat. Where it used to be people stayed home more, cooked more, then there was explosion of restaurants and people went out. And now we're starting to see change. And we're starting to see a high-low. What is happening? Well, first thing that's happening is that not everybody in the country is rich. And, uh, and not, a, not everybody in the country has gotten rich. Um, Despite the government shutdown, uh, there are other trends that are uh, equally important. Uh, the price of eating out has been going up rapidly for several years now, and we've talked about it in a previous show. Uh, the price of food is going up faster than the price of eating food at home. So at some point, when the pocketbook begins to pinch, you look at how much it's going to cost to go out and how much it's going to cost to pick up food at Kroger and bring it home. And the answer is that more and more people are bringing food home. The fact of the matter is that uh, statistics show that about half of our food dollar is spent on food away from home. That's a, (laughs) it's a shaky statistic because the fact of the matter is that about 80% of the meals in the country are eaten at home. Right. Okay, so the swing has to do with the fact that it's more, much more expensive to eat out. And, uh, the big cost right now is not uh, how much a pound of hamburger meat costs. The big cost difference right now for the restaurant industry is the cost of labor. Right. I mean, for those who have not been paying attention, the average minimum wage is going up in major cities, and other cities are, have either followed suit or are in trend in the next a uh, few years or three to five years to also hit a 15 or a common or something similar depending on the market and the city that they're in. Well, Amazon all by itself has set the national minimum wage rate. Amazon has announced they're going to be paying $15 an hour this year. Walmart just announced that its truck drivers will be getting close to $90 an hour because there is a labor shortage. If you look at a restaurant and then look at a supermarket... In a restaurant, you see lots of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a supermarket, go find somebody to tell you where the canned peas are. I can't. Okay. So every time the minimum wage goes up, it affects restaurants a lot more than it does supermarkets. You've also talked in, in the years past, uh, which you can go to our archives and listen to, about a glut of restaurants. So there was a time when there were so many restaurants opening, and it, it was obviously not going to be sustainable. Do you see this as kind of one of the reckonings of getting back to the correct amount of restaurants or some type of balancing out because it, it, it just has to be that way? The U.S., uh, unlike other countries, suffers from uh, two forms of uh, uh, selling things to people. One is there are too many restaurants, and second, there are too many retail stores. And third, as you know, there are too many shopping centers. So retail stores are closing left and right. 
uh, say hello, say goodbye to Sears. Uh, and uh, restaurants are also closing, but not at that rapid rate. Uh, the uh, unfortunate situation is that uh, restaurants' prices are too low because wages have been held down, and that's ending. Uh, and as restaurants are forced to raise their prices, I think we're going to see a fair number of them closing. But you you also mentioned that there's a new type of restaurant that's filling filling the gap. This type of fast cash and, and fast casual that is not a sweet green, which is not a Shake Shack, but is actually what you might have seen as a restaurant, which is less people, more streamlined service. People are going to get their own things. Where do you see this uh, filling the gap and, and why do you think that this is catching on? That's an interesting question and it's an interesting phenomenon. The chains that you just mentioned, the Sweet Greens and the Shake Shacks and the Five Guys and uh, that group, uh, formed a uh, an area of food service called Fast Casual. And the idea was that you could go to these places and spend a bit more money and get a little slower service, uh, but you get a lot better food because the food would be fresher. Uh, and the contrast was if you go to McDonald's, uh, you don't get food, you get a package. Uh, if you go to Sweet Green, you order a salad, and then you talk to the waiter and the person who's assembling it, and you have control over your food, and you see, see it being put together. So uh, this was supposed to be a step up from fast food. As it is developing, the point you're making, as it's developing, we're finding that restaurants, casual restaurants who are feeling the same labor pinch as everybody else are looking for ways to wash out as much labor as possible. So they're taking the idea of uh, the service at Chipotle Grill or Sweet Green, those are my two favorite examples, and making the food even better. So they're, they're now serving restaurant food in a Chipotle or a Sweet Green kind of setting. So there's no waiters, uh, there's no seaters, there's no tablecloths, there's uh, you you order at the counter. You pick up your food. You take it. You bust your, <laughs> you bust it, and you and and you're gone. Uh, but you've gotten a restaurant quality meal experience. So if fast food is a, has an average uh, check of I don't know, make up five dollars, uh, and Sweet Green has an average check of twelve dollars, uh, we're now looking at places that have average checks of eighteen, nineteen, twenty dollars. Were you getting a meal that you used to get in the same premises for 40? And has there been, in your research, what have been customers' reactions? They like it, they don't like it, they feel like it's, you know, the, the, it's a weird experience because they're kind of in the middle, or, or does it all seem to work because of the price point? It works because of the price point. It works because they're familiar with the system. Mm. Uh, Chipotle has made it familiar. Uh, and... Uh, not everybody is, is going to be happy with this kind of service, but it is providing a opportunity to eat out at a price that prior to that you would look at it and say, yeah, well, we can't afford that this week. And do you think that these restaurants are built to scale? Like there'll be 10 of these or are these the same? It's almost the same like these small 44 seat restaurants. This is just the new way they're doing service. Both. Uh, there are some uh, people who had 50 or 60 seat restaurants who have switched to this fast casual kind of service uh, and it'll just be a one-off because it's an entrepreneurial adventure but uh, a lot of these I believe uh, have traction uh, are scalable and uh, could very well be the next wave of restaurant development and well, if that, and if that's true uh, then the old legacy, restaurant chains are going to be in even more trouble than they are now. I'm talking about things like Red Lobster and Olive Garden and TGI Fridays. One of the other points you make uh, as well is that it, it saves in expenses, which I think is an interesting thing to consider. 50% um, of it is takeaway, so smaller restaurant, less energy, less gas. That's correct. So it, these become financial decisions as well. And it also straddles the, the first point you made, which is that uh, more people are eating at home. Uh, now, in this particular case, uh, I might be eating at home, but I had, my, I had my food delivered or I picked it up from a restaurant. So, uh, in that case, the supermarket lost a meal that it could have sold to you if you were taking food home to cook it. Uh, 
the restaurants gained a meal, uh, but uh, in a far more efficient way. A lot of these things that you're talking about really do come down to, to economics and what forces when these things get more expensive is, is innovation. One of the things that we're seeing is innovation in, in AI and robotics for for restaurants. One of the things you touch upon are these conveyor-like uh, systems that are starting to pop up either in test markets or people trying to scale them. What are some of the examples you've seen and, and how nervous should employees be that they're going to be replaced? There's an awful lot of investor money going into uh, artificial intelligence and robotics. And uh, it's going, uh, among other areas, uh, into the restaurant industry because there's this labor crunch and labor crisis and the cost of labor goes up. It becomes more efficient to begin to think about replacing people with robots. San Francisco and um, and China uh, are the two centers of this sort of development, and it's happening also in the hotel business. Uh, there are hotels now where room service is delivered to you by a robot. Uh, there are hotels where there's nobody at the front desk except uh, uh, people-looking robots, avatars, uh, to check you in. Uh, and sometimes there's uh, a backup human being just in case something goes wrong. Uh, but if you think about your own experience in checking into a hotel, you, you went online, you pressed a button, you got a reservation. Uh, you came to the hotel, there's a kiosk over there in the corner, and you punch your name in and you wave your hand at it, uh, and your room key comes out. And so far, you haven't touched a person. Uh, restaurants are more complicated than that because you have to make a hamburger. You have to put lettuce and tomato on the toast the bun. Uh, but people are uh, inventing systems that will automate this process. Uh, there's a kiosk on the sidewalk in San Francisco uh, where you walk up and tell it what you want in the way of uh, your coffee in the morning, and a robot makes it. Uh, you, <laughs> you want a latte? It makes a latte. You want a double espresso? It'll make a double espresso. Not only that, it'll clean the counter after, after you've picked up your coffee and wiped some of the spill up. Well, you, you mentioned that, and you also mentioned Creator, which um, du- makes burgers uh, and has 350 sensors and, and two, 20 computers. Is it any good? Does it taste, does it taste right? Is, is anyone checking for quality? Is it just like approximating quality and approximating taste. This is a machine that's about 30 feet long. And it has a bunch of cylindrical, cylindrical tubes. All tubes are cylindrical. (laughs) (laughs) It has a bunch of transparent tubes. And in those tubes are uh, tomatoes, cheese, hamburger meat. Uh, And when you, you walk up to a kiosk, and you say, I want a medium-rare hamburger, and I want it with lettuce, tomato, and um, Korean barbecue sauce. And you punch all that into the system, and the machine will slice a bun, toast the bun, grind the meat, grill it, slice the tomato fresh, put it on the meat, put the meat on the bun, put the sauce on it, the whole thing. Um, yeah, it, it, it tastes like a hamburger. Yeah, but I mean, I, I am just so curious. I mean, again, if it's conveyor food in the same way that McDonald's or Burger King is, I'm sure it's of a certain quality, but I, you have to wonder, you know, if it all switches over to that, does it then just become a game of telephone where no one cooks a hamburger anymore and it's just like what someone told someone hamburgers tasted like and now it's just an <laughs> algorithm. Uh, to, to kind of bring this back full circle where you said people are staying home more, cooking more. One of the trends that arose over the years of the show is the the meal kit and mm-hmm. the at-home kit where there's now maybe 150, 200 different ones for every paleo, vegan, vegetarian, yes. carnivore. Yes. Um, how are they doing? Lousy. Um, it's, uh, it's a business where it's uh, somewhere between difficult and impossible to make money. Uh, and part of that has to do with uh, logistics. Uh, You've got to take all these meal components and put them in boxes and then put the boxes in boxes and then make sure they're uh, insulated properly and then have Federal Express deliver them uh, halfway across the country. Uh, and then when you get home, you got all this cardboard that you have to get rid of. Uh, 
most of the meal kit companies are losing lots of money. Uh, some have gone under. Uh, others have formed alliances with supermarkets because supermarkets already have the food there. Mm. Uh, and supermarket is a place that you go anyway, so you can order a meal kit while you're shopping and bring the meal kit home. So it doesn't have to travel halfway across the country. Are the meal kits pre-assembled there, or are they assembled at the supermarket? At the supermarket. Okay, interesting. Do, is, there, is there a clear, is there one that will survive? In the Hunger Games of meal kits, is, it, <laughs> is there one that will survive? I would, I would watch Kroger because it's the most innovative of uh, traditional supermarket companies, and it has made a couple of alliances with, with meal kit companies. Uh, I, I suspect that the future of meal kits is, uh, is not Federal Express. I think it's going to be a, a function of the supermarkets. Right where food always was. Which it always was. <laughs> but, uh, and there are some restaurants that are just tiptoeing into this sort of business. If I go to a restaurant and I pay them for a meal kit, I think that would be a bridge too far. <laughs> <laughs> Changing topics, uh, you always bring up new flavors and uh, new places that people are uh, bringing food from. So let's start with food from the stands. Uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan. Um, My uncle Stan. Uzbekistan. <laughs> um, what, what is the flavor profile? Um, why is that making headway in the States? And, and what, what are some of the standout dishes? Okay. The, the first is a, is a bigger why. Uh, you know, most of the uh, ethnic food that we eat in this country that, uh, is the result of migration. Uh, so uh, after the Vietnam War... Uh, there were huge numbers of Vietnamese and, and people from what we used to call Indochina uh, who uh, migrated to this country for safety reasons. Uh, and they began cooking for themselves, as all immigrant groups have, and uh, then their food spilled out beyond their neighborhood borders. And suddenly we've become expert on, uh, on purple basil and bird chilies. Uh, and the same is true with, uh, with Mexican food, and the same was true uh, with the Jewish deli. So uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, because all of these stands were part of the Soviet Union, with the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, and uh, lots of turmoil in uh, that part of the world, uh, we've seen a lot of immigration of people from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and all the other stands. And they're bringing their food with them. Uh, you see it most in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and then there's this obscure place called Brooklyn, uh, where there uh, are any number of uh, Uzbeki restaurants opening. Uh, it used to be lumped into Middle East Turkish cuisine, and we think of things like kebabs uh, as, as being the, uh, the most familiar of the food. Uh, but uh, these guys have their own versions and flavor profiles. And the, the part that uh, I'm interested in is they do a lot of organ meats. Uh, they do miraculous things with liver. Um, liver. Oh, I would never eat liver. But you would. I would. You would. I we're, would. We're Jewish. We grew up eating liver. Yeah, I know. And we will. Yeah. Um, but uh, also with vast amount of verbs, uh, tarragon, uh, basil, parsley, cilantro, uh, spinach is an herb, um, are used in, with a much heavier hand uh, than we're accustomed to. So the flavor profile changes, uh, changes enormously. And um, a few years back when you talked about, you know, the globe on a plate, I think that you see people just their, their palates have been exposed to so much. They, they want these new flavors. Their, their tongues are tired of the same thing over and over again. So when you get these combinations together, especially these stewed meats, the offals, all these combinations, it, it's different. It's new for them. It is. Uh, but it, in this case, it's, it's not fusion cooking. Yeah. This, this is genuine ethnic cooking. And for the most part, they're still cooking for themselves. So the, uh, if you can get to a real Uzbeki restaurant, uh, it will taste like uh, the food an Uzbeki person would eat, an do, Uzbek. Do you think 50 years from now it'll be like Chinese restaurants where there's like the Americanized Uzbeki and then there's like the off menu that you could order, like how they, how they used to cook it? Um, I don't think it'll get that far. Uh, and, and there's a good reason for it. Uh, there are a lot more Chinese than there are Uzbeks. 
Um, speaking of Chinese, my, my favorite food, Chinese food, is back on your list, which is great. Um, Szechuan hot pots, dry cooking, and bings, which I had the pleasure of having for the first time last year. So why is Chinese um, back on your list, and, and what are these new uh, flavors and these new types of cooking that are making their way? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know why Chinese has suddenly come back, uh, except that uh, there are, is a vast number of uh, contemporary Chinese people living in this country, whether as immigrants or as students. Uh, enormous numbers of students, as they can tell you, at Harvard and Columbia. And NYU. And NYU. Uh, and so uh, these people are ready for a new wave of food, and they're not particularly keen on eating what we used to call Chinese-American food. Uh, in China at the moment, there is a rage on hot pot cooking. Um, hot pot cooking is kind of like a fondue uh, with broth instead of a cheese sauce in it, and uh, you get an array of meats and vegetables and you pick them up with your chopsticks and you stick them in this broth uh, and cook it to your desired doneness. Uh, for some reason, uh, it be has become all the rage in China. Uh, and there are studies on how, how many hot pots are being made. And, uh, but it's it sloshed over into this country. Uh, and so there are, uh, where there are Chinese areas, uh, there are Chinese hot pots, uh, and f the ones that are most interesting are the Sichuan hot pots. Uh, in a Sichuan hot pot, the broth that you're dipping your food into is already pre-seasoned with uh, uh, a fire alarm's worth of chili peppers, and uh, and herbs and uh, and uh, anise, and so there's there's a real flavor and a and a punch in the nose when you when you. I mean, cook you, your food. Every time I go to a hot pot place, I can smell it on my jacket for like three days. I mean, I love it, but it, it's it's almost like enveloping all the senses as as well. That and there's a and there's a flame underneath the pot that's getting you warm as yes. long as well as the food. But uh, but, the, but there's a shift from uh, this hot pot stuff to what's called dry pot, uh, and that is that a and instead of you swishing your food around in the in a, a tub of liquid. Uh, you tell the chef what the ingredients are that you want, and he cooks it, uh, and it ends up with three or four tablespoons of liquid in the bottom of the bowl. But those three or four tablespoons of liquid are intense. Uh, and uh, you toss it like you would uh, spaghetti bolognese, uh, but uh, with a whole new flavor profile and, and far more exaggeration of what the flavors are. And what's a good example of some restaurants that are doing it at the, at the, the highest level? Um, at the, in New York, you would go to uh, a place called the Mala Project. Uh, there are two. There's one in the East Village and there's one in Midtown. And uh, they give you a choice of four levels of heat. Uh, uh, my medical advice to you <laughs> is to not to take the hottest because I've had the next to the hottest and it's incendiary. You pay for it no matter what. Yeah, you pay for it. <laughs> you pay for it no matter what. One of the other things um, that was such a delight this year is when I was running through the flat iron and needed something for lunch, I had my first bing and stopped dead in my tracks. I was like, why have I not had this? This is phenomenal. And, and also when I was traveling over in London, there was a big stand in one of the food markets. For those who are uneducated on it, what is this wonderful delight? <laughs> uh, there are two forms of bing. Uh, fundamentally, it's, a, it's either a flatbread like a burrito uh, or it's a crepe that's made with an, with an eggy batter uh, on, a, on a big heated steel drum. Uh, and they're made to order in front of you. Uh, the uh, the bing uh, is one that looks like a uh, burrito, uh, and uh, it's like Chipotle grill. Uh, you walk up and you say, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that beef shin with anise flavoring along with... Uh, Yum. Along with uh, chive ash and... <laughs> It tastes really authentically 
northern Chinese, uh, even though it's taken a fair number of liberties, but but you would recognize it immediately as Chinese. And there's a company in New York called uh, Junzi, uh, J-U-N-Z-I. They have one in... Um, across the street from Harvard, uh, across the street from Yale, <laughs> um, one up near Columbia University, one in Greenwich Village, and a, a fourth opening near Bryant Park. Uh, and uh, it was formed by a bunch of uh, Chinese PhD students who won a, won a contest <laughs> to produce a business plan for a restaurant that didn't exist. And here they are with four. The other one is a, is a company called Mr. Bing, which is probably what you had. That's, that's a big. Egg, that's a big eggy crepe, um, and it they they make this crepe in front of you, and then they fill it with all sorts of um, excessively salty and excessively seasoned product, uh, which I think is not as good as Junzi, but uh, they're both opening new places, and uh, you know. They're they're fast casual uh, of with with a new form of cuisine. They're very interesting. The final flavor profile that you touched on, uh, getting sweet on sour, is the rise of sour foods, um, where we had a craving for bitter before coffee, dark chocolate, Brussels sprouts. Now sour is getting into the mix. Why? Where is it coming from? And what are some really prime examples for people uh, who have not had the the chance to explore this yet? Well, uh, for one thing, uh, we're all, as you said earlier, we're always looking for new flavor sensations. And uh, for the last 15 years, the emphasis has been on, on bitter, whether it's bitter coffee or broccoli or uh, any of the cruciferous vegetables or dark, the darkest chocolate you can get. Um, so we've kind of used that up. Uh, Sour has always been a component of our food that we don't really pay much attention to. Uh, if you were uh, if you were having dinner in Southeast Asia, to go back to the area we were talking about before, uh, if you were in Indochina, uh, if you thought about it, you would pick up a lot of sour uh, in uh, the food you're eating, uh, and it largely would come from uh, citrus, citrus fruits. Uh, we're becoming uh, inundated uh, with uh, on both coasts uh, with Philippine food uh, because there are a large number of Filipinos in this country, but they, they, they've been rain, they've remained pretty anonymous. Uh, but like other ethnic groups, they're spilling over their borders, and uh, Philippine cuisine uh, is largely vinegar-based, uh, and it's also uh, largely citrus-based. So we're getting. And another dose of sour. Uh, and the same is true with, uh, in a limited number, a group of uh, authentically Iranian restaurants, uh, because we're getting a lot of Iranians in this country. Uh, and uh, their food, uh, like the ones from the stands, is heavy on herbs uh, and heavy on sour. Uh, what are some dishes that are prime examples of this that you, that people might have had and not realized that it's falling into this trend? Oh, ceviche. <laughs> um, every every time you've had ceviche, you've had raw fish uh, in lime juice, and the the flavoring is 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 the lime. Uh, and uh, if you if you go to a really good cocktail bar, uh, you will find that the amount of sweetening in cocktails has been diminished uh, and the amount of fresh acidic uh, fruits uh, has been accentuated. I hate a sweet cocktail. Never like them. Sugary sweet cocktail, not for me. You know, you're not an average American. No, I know. You're not even an, you're not even an American. <laughs> I, I like a dark, bitter, Amaro-based cocktail. That's for me. <laughs> so I will. I, I welcome the sour trend. Um, by, gonna, by the way, Korean food uh, is also uh, based on fermented food, uh, and the most familiar of which is kimchi, uh, which is as sour as all get out. We're gonna take a quick break. Throw to a mid roll. Jeet's gonna step in, do his thing, and then we we'll back with the second half of our 2019 trend show here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Are you enjoying this podcast? 
Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get. And I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. The most exciting thing on here for me is, as you put it, cell-based, slaughter-free, cultured clean, lab-grown motherless meat, otherwise known as plant-based meat. (laughs) You've seen a lot of headlines about it. You've seen the Petri dish, the $40,000 burger. But you've also been seeing um, a rise in companies that are getting pretty close. Um, I had my first Impossible Burger in August, and I still think about it. I couldn't believe how close the taste was, but I also couldn't believe how good I felt afterwards. Where is this going? What is the future? How soon will cows be safe to roam? Roam, roam, roam. <laughs> uh, you touched on two different topics. Uh, one is the growth of plant-based meats, uh, which we talked about last year. I said it was 2018 trend of the year, which uh, indeed it turned out to be, uh, except everybody's saying it's 2019, so I was a year ahead. That's the point of running a good trend report. I know, the hell with them. Um, the second is uh, what's called lab-grown meat, which I think uh, is equally important to uh, the plant-based meat substitutes that you've been getting, uh, including your Impossible Burger, which is a meat substitute. It's, it's a, a, veg- a vegetable product that's been manipulated uh, to a fairly well so that it, it tastes like a hamburger. It's pretty good. Um, the, the idea of um, what we're calling it motherless meat uh, is that you pluck a cell from uh, a chicken or a cow and you grow the cell in a laboratory under conditions that are more complex than you and I can ever understand. Uh, and eventually, you get meat. Uh, and you haven't killed an animal uh, because you've grown the meat in a lab. Uh, and there are companies uh, in Europe, Israel, and uh, the U.S. that are uh, getting huge amounts of investor dollars and working on this. Uh, the first one to market uh, is a... Uh, what you would call, uh, it looks like ground chicken. Uh, and it's being tested in a Kentucky fried chicken somewhere in England, but they won't tell you where. Um, and all the rest of this is stuff that's coming down the pike, maybe this year or next year. Uh, it could be 15 years before they get something that tastes like a steak. Uh, but, it, but it could be five years that it, that it looks like a steak. And the, the uh, implications of this are profound. Uh, if you can grow meat to scale in laboratories from cells, from animals and chicken, and by the way, people are doing it with fish too, um, you don't need farm, you don't need ranchers uh, because all you need is cells. Uh, if you don't need ranchers, you don't need acres full of cows uh, and pigs and chickens uh, dropping their poop into the ground. Uh, and polluting your streams, and uh, uh, also pooping up the air and and, uh, filling the air full of uh, uh, global warming gases. So that's a big change. I mean, you can look at at, uh, half of the country being turned back to forest. What people don't understand that red meat is one of the largest causes, and meat consumption itself, to... Climate, climate change. That's correct. They think it's transportation, but it's really that. And also the sheer amount of energy. Now, do you have a sense of how much energy goes into growing lab-based meat versus growing a, a cow or, or raising pigs? Uh, there are estimates. Uh, I don't have them. I do have them, but I don't have them with me. Uh, that was a trick question. Uh, the, the differences are quite profound, especially in terms of energy use and water. 
because it takes vast amounts of water to grow a, a calf into a cow uh, in order to make a steak. It's it's fascinating, and there are people who are detractors. Besides the people who don't want to eat their meat in lab, farmers are rightly scared. And what are some of the tactics that they're taking to battle against this? And, and they have precedent from the rise of, of oat milk versus standard milk. That, that's correct. Um, there is a, uh, I think it's the state of Missouri uh, just passed, the, if it's not Missouri, it's Mississippi or something else with an M, uh, just passed the law that uh, you couldn't call anything uh, meat uh, unless it came from something that had four legs. Uh, and uh, this was uh, obviously uh, forced on the legislature by the meat people. Uh, but the, the big protein selling companies in this country who traffic in meat and chicken uh, are also investing in the same lab-grown meat ventures uh, because, uh, A, they need to hedge their bets, uh, and B, this could be the next thing. <laughs> if you always you hear these laws and it's like you know you just people instead of understanding progress are just trying to, this is not stopping this will this will happen but it's always interesting to hear that people's response to change is to try to hold on to the past well they're vested interests the dairy and the dairy industry in this country is not in the best of shape uh, we sit on mountains of cheese and we keep on producing cheese uh, the consumption of, of milk falls every year and uh, so when the, when the dairy people see something like oat milk or soy milk and see the word milk on the container that just drives them nuts uh, and they are not winning in court and probably the states that are enacting the anti-meat <laughs> uh, will, will probably be overturned in the courts Speaking of losing customers one of my favorite trends that you keep highlighting um, are the non-food businesses siphoning off restaurant customers. Restaurants are just in trouble. But uh, a couple years ago, you talked about cafes in um, marquee flagship stores, like uh, Ralph Lauren opened up the Polo Bar. Uh, this, is a, this is an evolution of that, and I love that you touched on it and bring it up because it's interesting to see how people are trying to have this third place and have continued to capture customers. So what's changed from what we talked about in the past? One of the liabilities of being in the restaurant business is that it's a very easy business to get into. Having said that, one of the problems facing the retail industry uh, is that people are abandoning their stores in droves because you can shop at home and with a couple of clicks. So a lot of retail ventures are adding food to things like department stores and specialty stores and adding uh, uh, coffee shops and third places, as you said, uh, in order to provide a reason for somebody to come to uh, a Ralph Lauren with a polo restaurant. Uh, it's getting more interesting than that. Um, there are a group of uh, cinemas around the country, Nighthawk Cinema being one, uh, and uh, we have one here in Brooklyn, the Alamo Draft House, uh, that are actually building restaurants into the cinemas, and they're providing the equivalent of room service to your seats. So uh, the idea is that you can have a dinner and a movie without going out to first a dinner and then a movie, uh, but you can do it all in the same place. And that, that's sucking away business from traditional restaurants. And how is the food quality? This is what I always come back to is how is the food quality of these endeavors? Are they held to the same standards as if you were to go out to a restaurant, say Roberta's, is the quality fine? And it, you, it's a little bit, you're like, well, I'm doing this, so I have this other thing that kind of solves things. Where does it lie in that? And what standards do they tend to hold themselves to? Well, the food's kind of okay. Um, and if, if you've had uh, a hamburger or a bucket of fried chicken delivered to your seat, in the movie theater and you're watching a good movie uh, you probably won't pay too much attention to the quality uh, but it's not just movie theaters um, AT&T um, 
opened a space in Seattle uh, where um, you can use it as if you would a, a, a Starbucks. Uh, you can come in, sit down, go online, um, order a phone if you want to or, or not, uh, but they're exposing you to the AT&T market. And um, the, uh, the most interesting one to me uh, is uh, one of the bank companies uh, that's pretty aggressive in, in this area, and they've opened uh, several banks in places that used to be banks but don't need to be anymore because there there's six ATM machines take the place of most of what the banking functions are. Uh, but you can come into the bank and there is a guy who will uh, make a mortgage for you or you can just do your banking. Uh, but you can sit um, and go to a coffee bar and have a croissant and coffee or a sandwich and coffee and open up your laptop and uh, it's like the Ace Hotel without a hotel. Uh, so, uh, because it's easy to get into this food business, uh, we're seeing more and more people at using food as a way to get people onto the premises and keep them there. By the way, it's impossible for a restaurant to start a bank. Right. So, <laughs> it, it just further encroaches on the you know, thin margins of restaurants. Correct. We're going to go into my favorite part of the trend show, the buzzwords. <laughs> There's a lot of them this year. Some of them I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll start it off. We're just going to go all over this. Uh, for those who have it, we can follow along. Let's go for um, Kalamondin. Kalamondin is a, a very sour citrus fruit from Southeast Asia. Uh, you find it in uh, the same places we were talking about before. You find it in Philippine cuisine where it's a, a souring agent. Uh, and you find it in what used to be called Indochina. Uh, you will see it on menu. Sometimes it's called calamansi. Sometimes it's called calamandan. Uh, and uh, it's generally in, in upscale places. But we're seeing more of it. Oatmeal craze. Can't keep it stocked to the Whole Foods. It's insane. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I can tell it tastes delicious. I think okay. that's why. I think it's the first non-dairy milk that actually tastes good. And it also has the psychological advantage that oats are good for you even before you picked up the container of oat milk. Uh, no, it, it's, it, it's really sweeping away <laughs> a lot of other uh, milk substitutes. Duck and chicken liver preparations in restaurants that people trust. Were th was that happening in places where people didn't trust? No. <laughs> um, you really have to uh, trust trust somebody uh, in, a, in a restaurant with a good chef to serve you things like liver uh, or other organ meats. Uh, at the same time, most people who uh, order those uh, are self-selecting in terms of the restaurants that they choose to patronize. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, I guess it's a class thing too. Uh, puri catching on? Which one? puri. Oh, kachapuri. You know, I, have, I should explain what kachapuri is. Please. Um, it's a form of calzone, <laughs> except that it's open on the top, and it's shaped like uh, your bedroom slipper. Uh, or put it another way around, it looks like an oversized Danish pastry, but it's not filled with sweet stuff. It's filled with uh, cheeses and meats. Uh, and it's... Uh, Largely a Turkish dish. Uh, I saw it first in uh, Australia about a dozen years ago. And, you know, you asked me last year, uh, how, do, how do I keep track of these trends? And I said, I, you know, you find something and you stick it in a file and watch. Uh, so, uh, so you saw this how many years ago? About a dozen. Okay. Uh, you have to have patience to be a <laughs> forecaster. Uh, it, it's it's eye-catching. Uh you can eat it with a knife and fork, or you can pick it up like a big slice of pizza. Uh, and uh, because it's eye-catching, it's, it's suddenly catching on in uh, fast, casual places and, uh, and casual restaurants. I haven't seen it in TGI Fridays yet, but uh, it's coming. TGI Fridays might not be around for much longer, <laughs> according to your trends. Um, Asian pastry slash sandwich shops. Yeah. Um, 
We have several in New York. There's a flock of uh, Korean pastry sandwich shops uh, in around Atlanta for some reason. Um, and there's a vast amount of, uh, of them in San Gabriel outside Los Angeles where there's a big slew of Chinese restaurants. Um, they are uh, going after two markets. They're going after the people who want a snack or, or a sandwich uh, and are tired of ham and cheese. Uh, and they're going after people who want uh, a dessert and snack and coffee. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the sandwich that's, that's lighting everybody up this year is called katsu, uh, which is nothing more than a, a chicken cutlet or a meat cutlet with panko breading. But it's that presentation with the no crusts, and it looks really good on Instagram. And it, and it, goes, it goes on a slice of very fluffy bread with no crust um, and a piquant kind of dressing and a bit of slaw and uh, it became the rage because uh, somebody in London and a couple of people in the US were selling uh, filet mignon or wagyu beef katsu sandwiches for $180 a throw uh, well okay a lot of people don't go out every day for a $180 katsu meat sandwich uh, but it put the it put the concept on the map. Hard seltzer. Hard seltzer. Yes. <laughs> um, there's been uh, a dramatic drop in the number of people who are buying sodas, uh, specifically colas. Uh, so if you walk through your supermarket today. Uh, you will find a completely different population on the soda shelves than you would have seen five years ago uh, with all kinds of flavored waters and waters with vitamins and waters with even CBD now, uh, even cannabis waters. Uh, and among all of this is something called hard, seltz hard seltzer. It's um, got the alcohol equivalent of, uh, say, a light beer. Uh, so uh, instead of getting strawberry-flavored seltzer, which, or lime-flavored seltzer, which is really rather vile, uh, you can now get it with some alcohol. <laughs> uh, but it's catching on. Uh, and uh, the reason, as I said, is because people have been marching away from colas. We have hemp and cannabis and cocktails, soft drinks, beers, and everywhere else. Yeah, we do. Uh, the floodgates are opening. Um, so uh, this will probably be the next economic bubble uh, because everybody is piling into the cannabis business. Uh, the valuations uh, of uh, cannabis growing companies in Canada uh, doubles and triples. Uh, and, uh, our big beer companies are buying into them or buying them entirely uh, because beer sales are dropping. Guess what? Um, that beer sales are dropping the way cola sales are dropping uh, because the next generation of drinkers is less interested in beer. Actually, all alcohol sales are slowing down, but beer in particular. Uh, so the way uh, the meat companies are investing in cellular-grown meat and, uh, and vegetable substitutes for meat, uh, the beverage companies are investing in cannabis uh, so we're seeing, uh, we're seeing it in everything. I haven't seen it in underarm deodorant yet, but we'll probably get there. Probably just like any type of cream, lotion, whatever. We give our dog CBD oil. <laughs> and what does the dog say about this? Um, we gave C her CBD oil uh, in a hotel room, and she—I'm not kidding—trashed the mini bar and ate the mini bar. The entire mini bar, just like a human. <laughs> The final thing I want to touch on, which I think is the most um, impressive and important, is the rise of the chef activist. Jose Andres is a great example yeah. of feeding people uh, in Puerto Rico and bringing attention. He's now nominated for Nobel Peace, Peace Prize. Why do you think people listen to chefs more than anybody else? Well, chefs are more intimately connected with food than all the rest of us. Uh, and uh, chefs make a, a, a living by uh, doing a good job feeding people. 
uh, and I think that uh, there's been a growing awareness for two or three decades uh, about uh, the degradation of the food that we've been eating in this country since the Second World War. Uh, and we're now at a point where uh, I think a lot of people have uh, subconsciously uh, a guilty conscience, uh, especially chefs, uh, regarding the kind of food that they've been serving for decades and decades. And uh, because they're so close to food, I think the awareness factor uh, is more acute uh, in, the, in the restaurant world than anywhere else, uh, especially when you uh, look at uh, the, discrepancy, the discrepancy between incomes uh, and how people on the lower end of the income scale are forced to eat. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump hasn't, uh, <laughs> has been an impetus behind some of this, too. Uh, the, the idea that you're feeding people has been expanded to the fact that you're feeding the world. And uh, there's a conscience that comes along with that. And uh, a desire, let's say, to maybe right some wrongs that have been committed. That is beautiful. We're going to leave it at that. Michael, thank you so much. Where can people find the trend report? How can they get in touch with you? How can they read last year's trend report? See how consistent you've been. Where can they go? Oh, you can't find me. <laughs> you, uh, Google Michael Whiteman, restaurant consultant, and five million citations will pop up. Um, but where can they find the trend report? Uh, that's the easiest way. Oh, okay. That is the easiest way. Great. Well, thank you for coming by. Um, Jeet, welcome back. It's good to have you here. Um, we're looking forward to another season and another year of Snacky Tunes. Uh, tune in next week. We'll be back with an all-new live episode here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.